Let's turn this morning to the book of Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to come to a new section. The writer is going to shift a little bit of a gear here in verse 12. So Hebrews 12, 12 through 17 is what we'll work on this morning. There was back in the year 2017, the Dallas Marathon was happening and only about a quarter of a mile from the finish line, there was the leader of this marathon. Uh, last name was Self. Chandler Self is a lady, 33-year-old lady. And she's running this marathon. She's about to win. And second behind her is a 17-year-old high school senior named Ariana Luderman. So again, the 33-year-old Chandler Self is going to win. However, about a quarter of a mile from the finish line, uh, literally her, her legs just buckle. Her muscles just stop working. She had just exhausted her body to the point it physically would not want to move. Well, Ariana Luderman, the 70-year-old girl, she saw this happen. She could have been within her rights to just zip on by, and she would have won the marathon. Instead, she stopped and helped the other lady up. And with almost, not quite, but almost arm around her shoulder, she essentially helped her limp to the finish line and let her win. So again, the 17-year-old could have won, and no one would have fussed. In fact, when I looked up this story, I found a lot of people did fuss that she helped. The reason they were mad is they felt like the winner, it wasn't fair. She shouldn't have won. So people were mad about that. But the 17-year-old just said, you know, why wouldn't I help? There's someone that was down and struggling. It was easier to help than it was to go on by. Now, I thought about that for our passage this morning. Because the writer of Hebrews has been using that type of an analogy throughout this whole book. That the Christian life of faith is a marathon race. It's not a sprint. It's a long-term marathon. It's, it's from when you come to faith in Christ till you're dead from this earth or Christ returns. It's a long-term marathon. You pace yourself. You don't quit. You don't give up. Many of the people he was writing to were becoming weak in their faith. They were struggling to press on. Well, what he's going to do here now is shift a little and say, think about a marathon and that story I just told you about the two ladies. Marathons are typically all about the individual, how fast you are, how quick you do it. It's all about just you. But that woman here showed that you could have compassion too, though. You could help a fellow peer, a fellow competitor. And I want to stress this point as we look at the passage. What Hebrews is going to say this morning. Yes, the Christian life of faith is a marathon, but it's a team-ran marathon. It is not an individual sport. It's not me versus you and you versus me. It's not, can I grow more spiritually than you and faster than you or you than me? It's, I see you are hurting and you're down, then I stop and I help you. He's going to stress here this morning, listen guys, yes, it's a marathon and you're on the track. But it's about you looking at others around you, your family of faith, and making sure they finish with you. Not you beating them, but you finishing together. It is a team sport. So here, let's look at the passage this morning. And he's going to stress this idea to us that as a Christian, it really is true that you and I are to be your brother's keeper, your sister's keeper. It's not a private matter. It's a community matter. You're to help each other. I'm to help you and you're to help me finish, cross that finish line together. 
not like a race against each other. So Christians are to do this, and the title for the message is Finish the Race of Faith Together. That's the idea. So far he's been stressing, you need to finish, you press on, but now here he's going to say, but it's not just you, it's about everybody. Make sure that your brother and sister finish along beside you. Now, religion in our culture is typically viewed as a private matter. Our society says things like, you can believe whatever you want. Believe in leprechauns, fairies, wood elves, whatever you want. Just keep it private. Keep that between you and yourself. Don't press it on me, and I won't share mine with you. Religion is typically a a private matter. I I like to say that when it comes to family gatherings, I, I like to keep things peaceful, so I only talk about religion and politics. But as you know, that would not keep things peaceable. But that's our society. Keep it private. Believe what you want, but keep it to yourself. He's going to say here, that's not how it works for children of God. Christians are to be each other's helpers, each other's keepers. And in fact, when it comes to us and the rest of the world, if what we know is the truth, then don't we owe it to others to share the truth of God with them? It's not a private matter. So again, today's passage is going to kind of stretch us a little bit, to be honest, because I think as Americans, we're, we're big into this individualized, private type life. And he's going to say, this is a community event. This is a team event, and we need to be careful to make sure we're helping each other out. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 12. I'd like to ask you stand out of respect for reading God's word, if you can. Let's look at this together. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with one another and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Let me have a word of prayer for a moment. We'll get started. Lord, thank you that we have your written word by it to know your thoughts, your mind, your will for our lives. And we can learn from it and grow to serve you better, to be more obedient and holy. So I ask now, Lord, in this specific passage, that you would just speak truth through me, that you would get me out of the way. And Holy Spirit, you would just speak to every heart and mind here that we would be challenged. And this is a very challenging topic to think about, not just ourselves, but to, to peer into the lives of our fellow believers to help them finish along with us. Would you help us to learn these truths, Father? In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So let's ask this question then. How do we help each other on this marathon of faith? How do we look out for one another when it comes to the faith and being a Christian? Here's the first way. He's going to say, we need to help those who may be weak in their faith. would be the first two verses here. He again uses a metaphor of running a marathon. Notice the terms he'll say, the, the hands are drooping, they're weak, they're falling down, the knees are weak. So again, he's using the same metaphor he has before about running a marathon here. Now, I read and teach, y'all know this, out of the English Standard Version, and I love it, okay? But it has its occasions where it's not quite the best. And I, I just want to stress this here so we're not confused. If you look at verse 12 and you were to read on the screen or see in the English Standard Version, it reads, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. It has two verbs, lift and strengthen. 
that's not actually what is found in the original Greek. It's just one idea. The, the only idea that he says here is the verb to strengthen. So what he's going to, it's actually a command. We're commanded to strengthen something. He says the hands that are kind of falling to the side because they're tired. The runners in the marathon, the, the hands are up high, you know, but then you see them, the hands begin to fall down, their pace is slower. He says strengthen those hands, sort of raise them up there. Strengthen the knees that, that are weak and they're becoming feeble because, again, the runner is very tired. So this is how he starts. There's a command that we're to follow here. That verb is a command to strengthen. Well, what are we to strengthen? Now, you could take this passage and say, he's talking about myself, that I'm to strengthen my weak hands, my weak knees as I'm running the life of faith. I want to stress this morning, though, that through studying this is where I'm getting my point. He is not primarily talking about just you. He is saying the community, the other runners, because here in this analogy, he says, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees again. The word your that I'm reading to you in my Bible, it's actually not in the Greek. It's just strengthen the weak hands, the weak knees. So it could be somebody else's is the idea here. And as we keep reading the, mer- the metaphor here, he's going to make points that only make sense when talking about the community of believers. For example, he'll say later on, strive for peace with one another. Well, it's not just peace with yourself, right? That's with one another. So everything he'll walk through as we keep going, I hope you'll see He's talking about, yes, focus on yourself, but for the purposes that you can help others in the faith. So this is a community team event here. So when he says strengthen, again, now with that in mind, what's he getting at? Well, strengthen the other members of the team is the idea. The other members of the team who are racing along with you and you notice they're getting slower. Their pace is growing weaker. They're kind of drooping to the side. What, what is the person still running the race with strength supposed to do? Help them along the way. Strengthen up their hands. Help them with their weak knees. The word strengthen means to restore, to lift back up. Literally, you're, there are persons in a bent over position, and you help straighten them back up the right way. The hands are falling down, they're weak. The word for their knees are weak literally means lame and crippled. It's where we get our English word for paralysis. So this person is striving along in their faith, but something's come along their way and they're just growing so tired and weak. We're talking spiritually in their faith. But you see them and you see this and he's stressing here, the command is go help strengthen them back up in their Christian faith. Help them get on the track with more strength. He's actually quoting here from Isaiah chapter 35. I want to read this to you for the context. In Isaiah, God was speaking through the prophet Isaiah, and there were Jews that they'd been scattered around because they had fallen into sin. God brought a foreign army in to bring punishment on them, and they were kind of scattered out from their homeland. But God promised them, one day I will restore you back to your former riches, your former status. I'll renew you again. But some of the Jews were growing weak in their faith. They were like, well, if God was going to do that, he would have already done it. I guess he didn't mean it. They were just focused on the bad situation around them. They'd forgotten the promises of God. So here's what he said then in Isaiah 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majority of Carmel and Sharon. 
they shall, or excuse me, the majesty, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. So that's the promise. All that was to say restoration is coming back. It'll all be restored back. But he says this in verse 3, and it's what Hebrews is quoting. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Verse 4 kind of answers what he was talking about. Say to those who have an anxious heart. So there were Jews that they were worried. They were getting depressed. They were growing weary about their situation, thinking God has abandoned us. But he said here through Isaiah, no, say to those people, help them strengthen their weak hands and their feeble knees. Say to them, be strong, fear not. Your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. So that was the challenge here. There's people, there were Jews with weak hands, feeble knees, and he comes along and says, say to those people, don't worry about that. Don't fear. Don't get caught up in the situation. God will come and save you. With that in mind is what he's talking about in Hebrews 12. Again, where I stress the point. He's talking about you as an individual Christian. You see others around you in the faith, struggling, growing weak. Our job is to help strengthen them. Say to those anxious hearts, someone in a situation saying, where is my God? What's happening? Then to go to them, like he said through Isaiah, and help lift up their heart, encourage them lift up their soul. So helping others, again, is his idea. We're to help each other when we see this going on. Come alongside others who are having moments and seasons of doubts and weaknesses. Verse 13, another command he gives is make straight. So he says you're to strengthen the hands and knees that are weak and feeble. That's other members that are growing weak in their walk with the Lord. Verse 13, again, so now then, what else do we do? We make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So the command here is to lay out a straight, smooth path in front of the people so that they don't trip, fall into a hole or, or stumble. And the danger is they would, they're already weak and kind of ailing in areas. Well, if they were to fall and stumble, it could actually break bones and pop joints out of socket is his idea. It would cause further damage is the point. Well, to prevent that, he says, help smooth out the path in front of them so they can run with success. Now, here we could think of it like this. What is he really talking about? If we're running a marathon of faith, I owe it to myself first and the rest of you as my brothers and sisters in the Lord to make sure that I'm running the race successfully myself, that I don't stumble and fall into sin. Because if I do that, what could happen to others watching me? They could say, well, he stumbled off into sin. I will too. Sometimes when you fall into sin and others see it, it can cause a domino effect, a ripple effect. Others can see it and they'll fall too. It'll, it'll cause them to kind of go into weakness as well. Not everybody, but some. I think that's his idea. Make sure you have a straight path in front of you, meaning free of sin, free of obstacles, that would deter you from living your life of faith. Because if you stumble and fall, it could hurt another runner beside you. On the flip side of that, if you're running a straight path and you're removing sin and obstacles from your life, help the other runner beside you as well. If you see an obstacle in front of them, help remove it so they don't trip and fall too. Again, it's this idea of looking out for your brother and sister in the Lord, making that path straight in front of them so that they don't trip, they can be healed is the idea. Again, this is odd to think about in our culture, I think. We have a very private idea in our culture. We're a very private society. 
our society is big on, you know, hey, mind your business and I'll mind mine. Stay out of my business and I'll stay out of your business. That's kind of the world we live in. And there's a place for that, sure. I mean, we don't want to be nosy pests. I'm not arguing for that. However, I'm worried that this idea that we kind of hold on to inadvertently of, you know, look, I just kind of got my thing, you know, leave me alone, don't peer into my life, and I won't peer into yours. Hebrews here is saying, but you can't do that as a child of God. I'm to actually look at you, not in a hypocritical, nosy, pushy way, but to seek your betterment. And if I see that there's something going on causing you to stumble in your faith, I owe it to you to say, let me help you here. You owe it to me to say, let me help you there. Rather than, I see they got that going on. This is what we usually do sometimes, okay? You've probably heard this. We see a fellow believer, a fellow church person struggling in an area of their life, maybe struggling with a sin, struggling with a part of their faith, or they're in a situation that we know is not healthy and good. Rather than lovingly, I stress lovingly, rather than lovingly going to them and offering to lift up those hands and weak knees and help them, what we tend to do is gossip about them. We go to others in the church and our friend groups and say, did you hear about so-and-so? And then to cover up the gossip, we usually end the conversation with, I'm telling you this so you can pray for them. The, that is the key phrase to cover up gossip usually among Christians is I'm only telling you so you can pray. But in the midst, it was really, I just wanted you to know all that was going on with that person. Hebrews here would say, listen, you may be dead on right about that person. They may have a lot of stuff going on that's not good. But if you've detected that, then Hebrews here says, they're your fellow runner on this marathon track. Go help them. Not talk about them, help them with love. See to it they can be strengthened and grow. Now Hebrews again says that is the idea. Again, would you rather see them keep going on their path and fall into deeper sin and be hurt? I think most of us would say, of course not. We wouldn't want that for them. And again, we owe it to them to go help them and strengthen those weak knees and those hands. We should want to finish the race of faith together to help each other out along the way. Now, the next question is, okay, but how can we do that? If he's established the principle that I am my brother and sister's keeper, I'm to help you, you're to help me. I'm not just focused on myself. I am, in a sense, to be focused on my fellow brother and sister running the race alongside me. That's the principle. So, but how do we do it? Well, that's the next points. He says now in verse 14 here, here's what we do. We need to run after two things, peace and holiness. So in verse 14, he says, here's two things you need to strive for. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So let's just focus on this for a second. Here's the command he gives, strive. Some say pursue. The word means to chase down something or someone with intense effort. You're really pursuing this thing. Well, what are we supposed to pursue? Two ideas. He said peace and holiness. Well, peace with everyone. Some translations say peace with all people. That's fair. But again, I just want to stress, he, it actually just reads in the Greek, peace with all. Now, I think primarily he meant peace with all in your community of faith. Because again, so far, everything in context is about the one another's in the faith. Should we pursue peace with others in the world? Absolutely. But here, I stress, he's talking and arguing for, how do you help each other in the faith? Well, it starts with, we both, all of us, pursue 
peace with one another here in this body. We pursue peace and holiness. We strive for it. It's a command. Again, the word peace means harmony. Sort of the idea of unity. There's no discontent and grumbling and frustrations and conflict going on. There's peace and unity among the fellow runners on the same track. So again, he says we pursue that. We chase down this idea of promoting peace and unity among Christians. Specifically, we could say people in this church. That would be the goal. The second goal is holiness. Some translations say sanctification. That's, that's good. The idea here is personal dedication and devotion with your life and your actions to God and the things that God says to be about and to do. We pursue our own holiness and then in turn seek to promote the holiness of one another. That's the part we get uncomfortable with is we just get focused on ourselves and we should. A sick person can't make another sick person healthy, right? They need to be healthy first. But a Christian pursuing holiness in their own life owes it to their fellow believer to help them find holiness as well, to help each other finish the race together. So again, why is holiness such a big deal? Because he reminds them in verse 14, well, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. You see, it starts with salvation. You have to be holy. How are you holy? Only through Jesus Christ. By faith in Jesus Christ, forgiving you of your sins, you are by God. He looks at you and declares you righteous and holy. Now, we're still not holy and righteous in the full practical sense. We will be one day. But he has declared you righteous and holy through Jesus Christ. You have to have that garment of holiness given by Jesus Christ just to go to heaven, to be in the presence of God. Without it, no one will see God. You can't even be in God's presence without holiness. I think he said that for this reason, though. Many in their group are sort of teetering with their faith. They're, they're falling behind. Some of them were probably false Christians, but they're associating with the church. And I think he's giving a warning here of saying, listen, you can't give up on Christ. You can't fall away and fall back. Why not? Because without Christ's holiness, you can't even see God in the first place. So this is very important stuff that you strive for your own holiness and help others as well with their holiness. Now, again, we still sin even after salvation, but we are to strive, though, for holiness in our daily lives. That was uh, to be a warning to them, I believe, to make sure that they're focused on pursuing holiness and overcoming sin in their lives and helping each other do that is the idea. You see, I think he threw this in there for another reason. A, a true Christian, a true child of God, someone who's truly been forgiven of their sins through faith in Christ, they will want these things. It's desire. They will want to promote peace and harmony amongst their family of God. They will want more holiness in their life. They're going to pursue it. And when they sin, they're going to feel really bad about it because they know it's not what God wants for them. They're going to pursue these things. The false child of God is the person who says, 10, 15, 20 years ago, fill in the blank, I prayed a prayer, I professed faith in Jesus, and from that moment on till now, nothing of consequence changed in their life. They could say, look back and say, you could ask them, you know, have, has your life been really all about God? Or, well, I, I was saved when I was such and such years old, but I've, I've never really been associated with any kind of a faith family, a church family. Don't read my Bible. Don't pray. Don't really do the things God says to do. That doesn't make sense. He would say here, you have to have that initial holiness through Christ, and then it drives you to pursue more holiness in your life. 
But his point here is, we help each other along the way to keep accomplishing more holiness and have peace with one another. So, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers. They are children of God. So this is a big idea for God. Paul says in Colossians 1.22 that God has reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy. There's the idea holy and blameless without sin above reproach. So that's what he's done for you through Christ. Now he says you should focus on living that out day to day and help one another. Again, it's the one another. Help one another do that. If we were to focus on peace and unity with one another and our own holiness and then helping our brothers and sisters in Christ with their holiness, what kind of a wonderful picture of the family of God would that look like? Everyone's at peace and in harmony. Everyone's growing in holiness together. Everybody wins is the point. Now then, the outside world watching looks at that and says, I'm not sure what they're about, but there's something different there. Those people really care for one another. They really love one another. I don't ever hear, I, I was telling someone the other day, I would love to be out in the community, and I don't hear anyone really say anything bad about our church, but my goal long term would be something like this though. I'd love to hear even an atheist out there who never wants to go into a church. If they were to find out you went to First Baptist Web City to say, man, I don't believe what you people believe, but I'll say this, I respect you guys because you guys sure do love each other. You guys sure do act differently than everyone else I've ever seen. That would be awesome to me. To have such love and peace and harmony and holiness that even just the reputation of the church is like, man, what is going on there? Look at what those people do for one another. In fact, it was Jesus who told the apostles in John, one of the biggest evidences to prove that Jesus is real, this is what Jesus told the apostles, he said, not uh, scientific proofs for God, not all these other proofs you can look at in other parts of history. He said, actually, it starts with this. He said, your love for one another, disciple to disciple. He said, that would prove to the lost world that I'm real, that God is real, is the love among his disciples. So here Hebrews, I think, is stressing that. It's about the one another, me helping you, you helping me. I'm promoting peace and unity, just like you should be. I should be promoting my own holiness and at the same time helping you with your holiness. I think some questions to ask ourselves would be, am I concerned about being at peace with one another? Am I concerned about being in unity with my fellow believers in the Lord? What about fellow members of this church? Am I concerned about promoting the peace and unity here among this body? Do I promote unity and harmony with my actions and my words? Am I concerned about growing in my own holiness? Am I concerned about making sure my brother and sister in the Lord are succeeding as well in their spiritual marathon? How do we do this would be the question. Real quick, Paul, I think, shares a little simple model in Philippians 2, 1 through 4. It says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He says this, so here's how you are of one mind in harmony. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, that's jealousy, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That's hard. 
That's hard for me. That's hard for anybody. But what Paul bluntly just said was, how do you promote unity among the family of faith? You start with not being selfish and jealous of each other. You seek to be humble. Well, how do you show humility to the other? He bluntly says, do you care about your fellow brother or sister's concerns even more than your own? As we said in verse 3, count others more significant than yourself. I should have more regard for you than I do for myself. Well, the final proof he would give is, because that sounds harsh, right? That's hard. But he says, but listen, is that not what Jesus did? Jesus could have said, look at these sinners down there. I'm just going to let them fall into their sin and, and die in a judgment of sin. Jesus said, no, I'll set aside my glory as the Son of God. And I'll humble myself to be one of them, to die in their place for them. Even the ones who will reject me and, and hate me. He still died for them. So Paul says that's the model of humility. He sought others' interest above his own, even to the point of death. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. He did say not only to your own interest. So yeah, look, take care of your business. That's true. But he said not only your business, also the business of others in the faith to see that we're all growing together, promoting unity and harmony. Peace and holiness are the things we pursue personally, and we help each other along the way. Here's the final point. We pursue those two things, but at the same time then, we watch over each other as well. We help protect and guard one another. That's his final point in the last three verses here. Watch over each other. This is interesting. Look at verse 15. He says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. There's going to be three phrases he says that you watch out for. You help each other, watch over each other. But I want to stress this to you real quick in verse 15. That phrase, see to it, that's a verb there. That verb is only found in two places in the New Testament. Right here, and the other one is found in 1 Peter 5.2. Let me read that to you. Peter says, shepherd the flock of God, that is among you. He's talking to pastors, elders. And then he says this, exercising oversight. Now that phrase I just read, exercising oversight, is the same verb right here in Hebrews 12, 15. See to it. And then Peter says, exercising oversight. It's the same Greek verb, only found in those two places. I stress that for this reason. It's almost like here in Hebrews 12, 15, he is suggesting because Peter outright said the word to the pastors, exercise oversight, meaning watch out for, guard over. Pastors are to do this. They're to shepherd over, guard over the people of their church. Spiritually see to it. They're healthy. They're growing in Christ. That same idea is used right here in Hebrews twelve fifteen. But he's not talking to pastors, is he? He's talking to every Christian. And he's saying this, see to it, dear Christian, guard over, watch over, almost like a pastor would watch over their flock of members. What are we to watch out for? Each other, that we are avoiding these three ways. First one, he says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. I think he's saying something like this, by failing to obtain the grace of God doesn't mean losing salvation. We have other scriptures that teach you, you cannot lose your salvation, like Bruce shared in the scripture reading, Jesus himself over and over said, it's eternal, it's secure, no one can take you out of the hands of Christ. So I don't believe he's talking about that. However, we know from this letter, there were people, 
identifying with the church, associating with the church, outwardly looked as though they were Christians, but inside were not. I think he's kind of giving a warning to say, watch out for one another, because it could be among your ranks, among your membership, that someone is not truly a convert of Jesus Christ. They are going to miss God's grace. They're not going to find salvation. Well, what's our part in that? If we detect this or see that, we owe it to them to lovingly explain the gospel and truth, to lovingly help them understand God's grace, rather than say, oh, so-and-so in the church, I don't really think they're saved. We just kind of, you know, they do their thing. Well, if we think that, then we should be praying for them and helping them understand God's salvation in a very loving manner. That's his idea of guard over each other to make sure it appears as though we are really in the faith. Help each other if we think that we're not. The next thing to guard over is, I would call it spiritual health. He says this phrase, to see to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. Roots you don't see. All you see is above the ground, right? The plant. The roots are beneath the surface. You don't see the roots. Well, he says here, no root of bitterness, I think on purpose. Meaning that inside this person is dwelling up in them a spirit of bitterness. You don't see it maybe on the outside yet, but it's kind of in them simmering and it's getting ready to produce its fruit of bitterness to come out in them. The word bitterness means a harshness. This is a very resentfully spirited person. They're just harsh. They're agitated. They don't promote peace and harmony. You know, earlier he said, pursue peace. This will be the opposite. This is the person destroying peace. They're just causing all kinds of issues and contention and gripes and concerns. And the danger, he says, is it sort of spills out of them and it impacts others around them in the Christ community. Because look at the phrase, um, springs up and causes trouble and it may cause others to become defiled. It sort of stains others around them. It could be that this person is blowing up on people, causing problems, and the well-intended Christian that's kind of their victim, maybe they blow back at them. They fall into sin too because they're not handling that with grace. Well, both are kind of wrong, but the one with the bitter spirit kind of started it, and it causes others to either fall into sin themselves, or it just causes all kinds of issues among the community of faith. He says, guard over one another to make sure that we can see in me and I can see in you a spirit of peace and harmony. If, and I, I would mean this if it were me or it were you and there were to, to seem to be arising some bitterness of soul and spirit. I would hope that you would have the courage to come to me in love and say, you know what? I don't know what you got going on, but I'd love to pray for you and help you because you said this or you did that. Man, that was really hurtful or that did this. That's his idea, I believe. Brother, if you let that sit and simmer, it just spills over into everything and it kind of victimizes a lot more people. So we guard over each other to make sure we're spiritually healthy, that there's not anything simmering beneath the surface that is dangerous to the health of the church. The last thing he says we watch over, I'm going to call this here um, sin. We do, in a sense, watch over one another to help guard one another from falling into sin. Look at verse 16. He says, see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. He's going to use Esau as an illustration here. He's found in the book of Genesis. His story is his uh, brother Jacob, and then there was Esau, two brothers there born at the same time. They had the father Isaac. Well, Isaac was going to give the blessing of the family to the firstborn son. Esau was the firstborn son there. But 
What happened was Esau, it says in his story, was not a godly man. He was a man of the world, meaning ungodly, wicked, not spiritually minded. In fact, there was an episode when his brother Jacob was cooking some food and Esau come in just weary to the point of death and he wants Jacob's food. It said he was a good cook. And Jacob said, well, sell me your birthright and then I'll give you this food. Now, the birthright was the inheritance that the firstborn rightfully legally was going to get from the father. He would get the bigger portion between his brother. Now, here's the key to all of that. The thing that they stood to gain, so to speak, the, between the brothers there, wasn't just the riches of their father. It was the covenant promise God made to Abraham that through them, the Messiah of the world would be born through their family tree. A nation would form from their family tree. Abraham received it first, passed on to Isaac. Isaac is going to give it to either Jacob or Esau. Now, God had already said which one would get it. But practically how it worked out, though, Esau did not get it. Is that because God hated him? No, he didn't get it because he was an ungodly, unholy man. He sold his birthright for a meal. That was him sort of showing to God, I don't care for that promise stuff that you made to my grandfather and my father. I don't care for any of that, God. I just want what I want right here, right now in front of me. I want this food. And then the rest of his story is he married ungodly women, had ungodly marriages. He was just an ungodly, sinful man. He uses him here as a case study to say, don't be like Esau. Well, what was his problem? Two phrases, sexually immoral and unholy. He was sexually immoral. I think the reason he throws that in there is the person who cannot control themselves sexually, that shows they just have undisciplined in all parts of their life. That's kind of the ultimate standard for if you can't control that, then you're just undisciplined in all kinds of other areas. That is a real test marker of how disciplined a person is. And Esau could not control that. He says, well, then that meant he was ungodly. That word means unholy or worldly minded. Esau was just in every sense, top to bottom, not a man of God. He, cared, he wanted instant gratification in the moment. He wanted the things the world could offer him. He shunned the things of God, is his point. So now let's look back here. Here's why he shares that then with that context in mind. He sold his birthright for a single meal. That's the story I told you. Now verse 17 though. You know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. So after Isaac gave Jacob the blessing that Esau was to get, Esau begged his father with tears, do you not have another blessing for me too? And Isaac basically told him, no, everything that I had that God was going to give to you just went to your brother Jacob. And Esau wept bitterly, it says, begging for another blessing, and there was none to be given to him. Is that, again, is that because he was a victim here? No, he sealed his own fate. He rejected the things of God earlier and rejected it to the point that now then when he realized what he'd done, he wanted to undo his mistake. It was too late, though. Look at the rest of the verse. He found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Some have said that this verse means um, a person can sin to the point they can never be forgiven. I don't believe that. That's not the point of this verse. He's trying to stress to us that Esau... When it came to that blessing, he had sinned to the point he couldn't undo what he had done. He couldn't get the blessing back. There was no do-over for Esau. The fate was sealed. He could not get the blessing back. And I believe his point here for us and these people would be this. 
we watch out for one another to make sure we're not becoming Esau's, that we're not falling into deep sins. Why? Because if I see you falling into sin, becoming ungodly and immoral, and I sit back and I gossip about you and I don't try to help you, you could become like Esau, meaning you get to the point you've just made such a wreck of your life, you can't undo it. You can't fix it. You can be forgiven, I believe, if someone truly repented in humility, but the damage may be done. Or you could press this farther and say, maybe they aren't a true Christian and that's why they've fallen into sin. And we don't say anything and we don't do anything to help them. Well, then when they face God on judgment day, it really is too late at that point. They can't just say, God, I'm sorry that on earth I rejected your son, but now that I'm here and I see that you're real and, and you're about to render judgment on you, now will you forgive me? They'll be like Esau's begging for that forgiveness and God will say, you had your chance and you missed it. It's over now. There's no more second chances. There's no more do-overs. You can sin to the point that maybe we become so hardened of heart like Esau, we just reject God for the rest of our lives. I think he's saying here we should guard one another to protect from that. If I see you going down that path, I should lovingly say, hey, I really want to help you here. I don't want to see you go down the path of Esau, make a wreck of your life and ruin things from now on till eternity. We look out and help one another from becoming like this. Well, let me say this to finish this up here. How do we do this properly? I want to give us some quick practical things. I think there's couple of passages of scripture that just kind of lay out how could you do this because i want to stress there's a danger here we have to be careful see we can get too pushy and too sort of pestering with the i'm peering into your life and because hey you know the bible said i'm to help you out so i'm here to help you out but but we can almost do that in an arrogant sinful way like i've got it all figured out so now i need to come help you and i'm going to get in your business well we can't do that either but look at this jesus said in matthew 7 verse 1 the famous verse that even a lot of non-Christians know who've never read the Bible. Judge not, lest you be judged. That's how he starts. And most people stop there. Hey, don't judge me. Jesus said judge not. But wait, there's more. He didn't stop there. He said, for with the judgment that you give, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So he was basically saying this. When you judge someone, just understand the same standard that you judge someone with, God's going to in turn judge you with that same standard. He's basically saying, don't be a hypocrite. Because look at verse 3. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Jesus was exaggerating to say, you're going to your brother and sister in the family of God noticing the little tiny sawdust speck in their eye. Let's call that a little sin. And you really want to get on them about it. You shouldn't be doing this. I'm here to help you. But then Jesus says, but you're ignoring the massive log, the tree trunk sticking out of your eye. That's the, the even bigger sin, so to speak. Jesus was saying, you're being a hypocrite at that point. You're not dealing with your own big issues, but you think you should go to the brother or sister and try to help him with their little speck. Notice what he says, though, how to fix this. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. So he gives a formula, though. First, step one, take the log out of your own eye. Deal with your sin first. Deal with that. Then there is a step two, though. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. I love that passage because, again, a lot of people stick with the judge not, lest you be judged. But Jesus gave a whole paragraph to say, oh, no, no, you can judge. In fact, we should, in a way. Judge in the sense of helpful judgment. I want to help you overcome sin. But he said, but don't be a hypocrite about it. 
Don't go to someone and say, hey man, you really need to stop doing this or that. When you've got this other thing going on, that's a major issue between you and the Lord, and you won't deal with that first. First, deal with your sin. Then Jesus did call for, yes, then go to your brother or sister and help them out too. So the point is, how do we do this? Well, don't be a hypocrite about it. Overcome your sin first in those areas before you go try to help someone else in their areas. Think of a, a drug addict. You know, the, you got a, someone still on drugs and they, they're not in rehab, but they're, they're on this other drug addict. You got to get in rehab, man. You got to overcome these drugs. And they're going to be like, well, you're not in rehab. You're a drug addict too. That doesn't make any sense. Get over the drugs and then go help the other drug addict. That's kind of the formula he gives. Another one is, um, I'm going to skip to Galatians 6. Galatians 6, 1 through 2. Paul says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any sin, you who are spiritual, we could say spiritually mature here, you should restore them, but notice how to do it, in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted too. So Paul's formula was, yes, I see you going into sin, I should intervene. But how? Well, Jesus said, not with hypocrisy. And Paul says, with gentleness and kindness. Because the goal is not to show you how bad you're being, it's to restore you back to faithfulness. That's the mindset you have when you approach that brother or sister to help them. I'm here to help restore you, not put you down, lift you back up. Paul ends with, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So again, Christians, the life of faith is a team marathon, not a competitive sport with one versus one here. We're to be our brother and sister's keeper. I look out for you, you look out for me. We pursue holiness and peace among ourselves. We watch out for one another, guard over one another. When we see each other struggling, we lovingly and gently intervene without hypocrisy to help them along the way. But again, it all is wrapped up in the gospel of Christ because remember he said, it's all about holiness. I'm, I'm actually trying to help you be more holy, more like Jesus. You're trying to help me. Why? Because he said, remember, without holiness, no one can see God. You can't earn your way to God. You can't give enough your way to God. You can't work enough your way to God. He says, it, you have to have holiness, and how do you get it? It's given to you through faith in Jesus Christ. It's like he gives you new clothes to wear that are holy and spotless. Only through repenting of your sins and believing in him can you have the holiness of Christ. I'm going to pray, and as I do, Bruce and his team will come. I'm going to give us a moment to think and just ask ourselves some hard questions, myself included. When I see others, maybe even here in this church, falling, faltering, do I have concern and care to lovingly intervene or just talk about them? Well, would you stand with me, and as you do, we'll pray and think about these things as Bruce and them come and lead us invitation. Lord, thank you for salvation that is given to us and not earned. God, this has been challenging to me, and I pray that it would help each of us leave here thinking differently about not getting wrapped up in just being solely focused on ourselves, even spiritually, but to see that you died for all of us, and this is a team effort, and that we help each other grow to be more holy and more like you. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen.